You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 27. Greetings, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. And for those who are just discovering this show for the first time, welcome aboard. In this show, I share my fresh new fiction with you, while also keeping you updated on my writing progress. You'll hear more about that later in the show. For now, let's go to today's story. Today I'm bringing you the remaining half of Chapter 1 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're just joining us, the following recap will contain spoilers. Go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. In last week's episode, we met Hal Raines II, Esquire, the adult son of missing explorer Cynthia Raines. Cynthia vanished at the mysterious Telvari Rift when Hal was only a baby, leaving him to grow up without any clue of what had happened to his mother. Twenty-five years later, we saw Hal being approached by Ezekiel Kapler, the scion of one of Metamore's noble houses. Zeke, a former lover of Hal's, managed to cajole him into joining Zeke at his father's plantation in the Telvari Rift Zone. Zeke's motives for the mission were unclear, but he promised Hal that he would get him the answers he had always wanted about his mother's disappearance. Though he was reluctant to let Zeke get involved again in his life, Hal finally agreed. Soon, Hal found himself at a remote and heavily guarded facility operated by Kapler Pharmaceutical, the company owned by House Kapler. The Pharmacorp was using the Telvari Rift Zone to grow and harvest Nocturna's lilies, an extremely valuable crop with magical properties. Hal was taken to the Kapler's penthouse quarters, where he learned that Zeke had not come alone. His current girlfriend, Lady Julia, was also there, and she wanted to make sure there was no confusion about whom Zeke would be going home with when the mission was over. Two of their mutual friends, Misty and Sefi, had also made the trip, though the reasons why any of these men and women are interested in the Telvari Rift have yet to be revealed. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 1 Continued That night, Zeke held court in the penthouse living room, where he laid out the details of his plan. Dressed in a burgundy smoking jacket that was totally unsuited to the weather outside, seated in a high-backed armchair with his back to the illusionary fireplace, he looked to Hal like a kid playing dress-up, or the villain in a cheesy spy movie. What Zeke lacked in taste, though, he made up for in charm and enthusiasm. His dark brown eyes sparkled with an almost manic glee as he told them about the obstacles he had overcome, outmaneuvered, or just paid off in order to bring them to this place. Hal had to admire his persistence and ingenuity, at least. Hal sat alone on the love seat on the far side of the circle, facing Zeke across the coffee table. The couch to his left was occupied by Julia, who sat on the end nearest to Zeke, and an older man whom Hal didn't recognize. The stranger wore a white polo shirt with the Kapler Pharmaceutical logo, 
So Hal supposed that he must be one of the men on the inside whom Zeke had mentioned. On the other couch sat Misty and Seffy, their arms and legs intertwined with a casual intimacy. Seffy, Lady Sephira Hinlassos to the masses, looked much as she had when Hal first met her in boarding school. Tall, pale, and willowy, with white blonde hair that fell in a straight sheet down to her shoulders. The last ten years had filled out her curves a little, and given her an added measure of grace and poise. When Hal looked in her eyes, though, he saw the same warmth and laughter, the same gentle spirit as the awkward girl he'd once studied with. It reassured him to know that some people, at least, could live in the circles of power and not lose themselves. Where Seffi was largely unchanged, Misty was nearly unrecognizable, or she would have been, if her long succession of body enhancements hadn't been tracked by the gossip rags in lurid, exhausting detail. Lady Mysteria Halloway was the only heir to one of the richest noble houses in Metamore, and she took a perverse delight in flouting her family's ultra-conservative values. At the age of 18, she'd made headlines across the city when she announced that she'd joined the Church of Hedonism, the cult of the fallen goddess, Suspira. In the ensuing years, she'd had her body spell-sculpted repeatedly, buying herself an hourglass figure, wavy black hair, red-brown skin, and sparkling amber eyes. Her latest enhancements were a set of pointed ears and a tongue that was twice the normal human length. Hal had discovered the latter when she kissed him hello. He wondered if she would ever round out the succubus look with horns and a tail. Probably not until after Count Holloway is dead, he thought. He'd leave the estate to his butler before he'd give it to a daughter who looked like a Daedra. Misty and Seffy made a strange pairing, and one that the tabloids had speculated on endlessly, but they'd been best friends for as long as Hal had known them. Whatever else they might share was no business of Hal's. They'd each had a succession of boyfriends over the last ten years, and Misty flaunted her participation in the orgies conducted by her church, but somehow they always found their way back to each other when the dust settled. Hal found that strangely encouraging— like a single, genuine flower blooming in the midst of a garden of plastic. Zeke rose to his feet, drawing Hal back to the present. He raised his tumbler of Sathmoran whiskey and gestured at the man sitting next to Julia. "'That's where our Mr. Travers comes in,' Zeke said. "'He'll fly us out to the northeast corner of the plantation, right on the border between the outer and inner rift zones. The Border Patrol has a shift change at 10.15 tonight.' While their skimmers are on the ground, we'll slip over the border and head for the rift. What about the sensor net? Misty asked. Guards are no guards. Somebody's going to see that. True, Zeke admitted, unperturbed. It took some doing, but I've made friends with the techies who are on duty tonight. That piece of the sensor net will be down for maintenance from 10.10 to 10.25. Plenty of time for us to slip through unnoticed. They'll bring down another piece of the net during the next shift change at 4.15 a.m. We can skim back out again with nobody the wiser. Misty smirked and nodded in approval. Pretty smooth work there, Zeke. Makes me wonder what you promised them. Never you mind, Zeke said easily. Travers shifted in his seat and cleared his throat. His face was outwardly calm, but his eyes had a trapped look about them. I wonder if Zeke's holding something over him to get him to do this, Hal thought. No, scratch that. 
I wonder what Zeke is holding over him. I still can't say I'm quite clear on what it is you'll be doing out there, Lord Ezekiel, Travers said. Seems to me they put up that fence for a damn good reason. Zeke smiled, looking completely self-assured. My dear Mr. Travers, that fence is there because of fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of something the authorities can't control. When Lightpath Two returned from the rift, every single member developed incredible psychic powers from their exposure. Travers smiled dryly. Son, I remember Project Lightpath. There were a whole lot of folks who didn't come back at all from that mess. And the ones on the rescue team who did come back went crazy. Only four of them had to go into serious therapy, Zeke said. And what they thought was insanity back then was really just their new powers manifesting. They didn't know what to expect, what was happening to them. We do, and we will. He shrugged. Besides, the mere suits we have now are ten times better than the best suits that Project Lightpath had. We're not going to soak up more than a fraction of the mana rad that they got. Hal stared at him, incredulous. Is that why you're doing this, Zeke? You want psychic powers? Gods, don't tell me you've still got that inferiority complex just because you're... Hal! The bark of Zeke's voice cut him off immediately. For a moment, Zeke's eyes bored into Hal, flashing with anger. Julia fixed him with a similar look. Hal gazed back at them, unflinching. He'd seen it all before. After a long moment, Zeke's expression relaxed into that charming smile again. "'We're here to help you, Hal,' he said, as if speaking to a child. "'All of this is for you, so you can find out what happened to your mother.' The rest of us are just going along for the adventure. And if we pick up a few new talents in the process, well, that's just a bonus. Sure, Zeke. It's all about me. That's why you got Julia signed up for this before he ever told me about it. Hal sighed, not wanting to continue the argument. Fine. So what are we going to do once we get there? You mentioned trying to make contact. Yes, exactly, Zeke said. Lightpath too found the remains of a communion spell that the first team used when they got close to the rift's edge. No one knows exactly what they made contact with, but it's pretty obvious there's something out there. If it was talking to Lightpath 1 when the surge hit, it can probably tell us what happened to them. Assuming it didn't cause the surge, Misty pointed out, you go poking big ancient powers with a stick, they might get a little annoyed with you. "'which is why we're going to play it subtle,' Zeke said. "'Seffy, you're the magic expert here. "'You said we can invite the spirit to contact us without pushing it around, right?' "'Seffy nodded. "'It's basically the same spell people use to talk to nymphs. "'It's not that hard.' "'There you go,' Zeke said, turning back to Hal. "'We go out there, get close to the rift, open a line, and see if anyone wants to talk. "'Couldn't be simpler.' Travers grunted, but said nothing. Misty glanced over at Seffy with a knowing smile. "'That's the plan, folks,' Zeke said. "'If you want to back out, now's the time.' He looked over at Misty. The woman rolled one shoulder in an insolent half-shrug. "'Sneaking onto an imperial restricted zone full of dangerous wild magic, so we can talk to an eldritch spirit of unknown power and intentions?' She grinned fiercely. Sounds like a whole lot more fun than skiing. I'm in. Seffy shrugged. 
You need me to do the communion spell. It's a little scary, but it's also exciting. I'm not backing out now. Zeke looked over at Julia, who simply nodded. He raised his eyebrows at Travers. I'll be your driver, Travers growled. But don't expect me to get out. Entirely fair, Zeke said. His eyes fell on Hal. Well, Hal, what do you say? Hal crossed his arms. It's dangerous, illegal, irresponsible, and downright stupid. Zeke grinned. And? Hal looked down at the floor, sighed, then looked back up at him. And I'm in, he said quietly. Tuesday, April 3rd, 2000, Christos Reckoning Night fell on the city of Metamore. In the upper levels, where the Empire's wealthiest citizens lived in penthouse apartments and walked on marble skyways, 400 meters above the ground, nightfall was an invitation to relax and socialize. Exclusive nightclubs and gourmet restaurants swelled with patrons. Business tycoons and movie stars rubbed elbows with the lords and ladies of the noble houses. Orchestras performed, ballet troops danced, Theaters hosted bold new plays fronted by the finest actors and actresses in the Empire. Glamour and decadence reigned supreme. Two hundred meters down, the coming of night signaled the end of the workday for the city's middle class. Office workers, teachers, and students left their cubicles and classrooms, returning to cramped apartments and condominiums that offered as much comfort as their limited space would allow. The lucky ones might have windows that overlooked a garden terrace or the interior atrium of one of the massive towers that defined the city's skyline. For most, though, home was a well-appointed cage in a world of concrete, glass, and spell-hardened steel. When they felt the walls start to close in, they might escape to a concert or a movie theater, go swimming in a public pool, or visit the elevated shopping plazas that hung suspended amid the towers in the skyways. The night was a time to spend with family and friends, to rest and prepare for the next day's labors. At ground level, however, nightfall was something else entirely. In the tangled network of roads, alleys, and tunnels known as the street, direct sunlight was unheard of. 500-meter towers and four layers of magically suspended skyways blocked out most of the sun's rays, and even the electric streetlights were erratic and prone to malfunction. Nevertheless, during the daylight hours the street was alive and active, as the factories and warehouses produced an endless stream of traffic and goods that kept the industrial heart of the city pumping. But when the factory workers went home, and the warehouses shut their doors for the night, the street's other inhabitants came out from their dens. Swoop gangs and drug dealers battled for territory with knives, guns, and unlicensed magic. Runners, the couriers and spies of the criminal underworld, sallied forth to rob, bribe, and sabotage the enemies of their employers. And in the darkest corners of the street, where even the gangsters dared not go, the hunters rose from their lairs. Nameless things that hated even the idea of the sun, they crept and skittered and slithered forth as the twilight withered and died, eager to fatten themselves on the warm, tender flesh of the unwary. One such hunter watched with interest 
as a human stumbled into its territory. The man looked unusually old and weak compared to its usual prey, and he moved like the fox who already knows that the hounds are right behind him. His head darted about wildly, eyes erratically sweeping the darkness. His breath came in ragged gasps, spittle flecking his mouth and beard. He turned the corner into an alley, took three shaky steps, then paused with one hand clutching the rail of a fire escape, the other grasping at his hair. Get out of my head, he shouted. Even to the hunter, it was clear that the man was both angry and terrified. It shifted a bit closer, feelers tasting the air, claws flexing as they anticipated the feel of the human's bones snapping between them. The man abruptly threw his head forward, pounding it against the railing of the fire escape. Get out! Get out! Get out! He did it again, and the cool night air filled with the scent of blood. The hunter hesitated. Something was wrong. The human was not behaving as prey should, and in the infrared spectrum of the hunter's vision, it could see the man's body temperature rising. It happened swiftly and with little warning. White fire erupted from the man's chest as a last feeble scream tore itself from his throat. The hunter hissed and recoiled from the light, burying itself in a pile of garbage as the alley briefly grew as bright as the noonday sun. When it was sure the light had gone, the hunter cautiously crept out from its hiding place. It tasted ash and ozone on the air, and it saw the heat slowly fading around the fallen human. It came forward to investigate the body, but found nothing left beside a few fragments of clothing and a dry, unappetizing husk of skin stretched over blackened bones. It picked through the remains for a short time, but finding nothing interesting or edible, it soon abandoned them. The hunter went in search of tastier and safer prey, leaving the strange body alone in the darkness. And that's the end of chapter one. Who was the victim in the alley? What happened to him? And what happened to our five young friends at the Rift? The mystery continues next week, and Metamore City Police Detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf are on the case. Don't miss it, folks. Franz Kafka said, A non-writing writer is a monster courting insanity. For my part, I intend to be a sane monster, thank you very much. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 6,714 words this week, over the course of nine hours, for an average writing speed of 746 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script... I've gone 179 days without breaking my chain. The Lost in the Least is now into Chapter 11, and is up to over 34,000 words. One of the fun bits about this story is that I'm incorporating some supporting cast members who were requested by the fundraisers for my cover art Kickstarter a couple of years ago. For donors who contributed a certain amount, I promised to include their namesake characters in the novel. This week I got to introduce the first of these characters into the plot. 
Her name is Sandhya Idril, and she was requested by Veronica Jaguer, who is an awesome voice actor and podcaster in her own right. You can find her work at VoicesByVeronica.com. And now, the feedback. Sarah Testarossa commented on Twitter about the prologue to Things Unseen. She says it reminded her of Michael Crichton's book Congo, and said it was nicely eerie. She concluded, This prologue is a great start to your book. Unquote. Thanks, Sarah. I started writing Things Unseen way, way back in 2008, and the first half of the prologue was actually written at Balticon of that year. I had a joint reading panel with two other podcast authors, and this was the first time a piece of Things Unseen was shared with any audience. It was a long, long road from there to finally publishing the book in 2013, and now that I can finally release it here on the podcast, I'm so glad that people are enjoying it. Hey Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. Got some feedback for the last few episodes of the podcast for you. First, though, I did want to say to the other listeners regarding the Patreon, if you have been considering doing this and you want a really good bonus story, like, I really recommend it. The Just Coffee story is, no spoilers here, it's amazing. And you should listen to it. If you can, which you can only do right now by being a patron. So that's my plug for that. Obviously, if it's a financial hardship, we've all been there. But that story is really awesome and totally worth it. Thanks, Sarah. I'm really glad people have responded so well to the first bonus story. Again, if you go over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make an ongoing pledge for any amount you will immediately get access to Just Coffee and any other bonus stories that are live by the time you hear this episode. Anyway, so about the more recent episodes, Things Unseen is getting really interesting, although honestly the prologue had me hooked, the first part of the prologue. The second part kind of got that hook in a little deeper, especially with the end when their mirror suits are all mysteriously empty, except it's really not that mysterious. Well, it's mysterious, it's just not unexpected. Like, I had a feeling that that was going to happen. I didn't think they were all going to, like, die in some sort of bloody catastrophe. I'm like, uh, they're probably going to get, like, sucked into something, but we'll see what actually happened eventually. I did think that the kind of progression and the intensity there with the scene in the prologue, though, was really cool. Excellent. The mystery of the rift sets up the action that drives the rest of the book, so I'm glad it hooked you so effectively. We will find out the truth, but you'll have to wait for the climax before you learn everything, so buckle up for the ride. And in terms of the first part of chapter one, I like how we dived right into getting to know Hal, not through his behavior on his own, but through his interactions with other people. I know there's lots of ways for us to get to know characters through their independent actions, through their interpersonal actions, through their dialogue, but for this story so far, and in terms of what I like to see, I like to see the interpersonal tension giving glimpses at people's personality. So his conversation with Ezekiel, and then his internal, you know, torn feelings, it's like the feeling of that 
lust slash longing and yet the knowing he can't go back there and not really trusting what's going on. And then with Julia, like their interactions there, we learned we learned quite a bit about her, even though I don't even know really what their history is beyond their shared past with Ezekiel. Getting to know people through how they treat others is really fascinating. And I mean, that really is the thing that I really dig the most in terms of the three main types of conflict. You know, I know that in school they used to call it these things. I don't know if they've gotten better non-gendered phrasing now, but man versus nature, man versus himself, and man versus man. And in this case, I do end up finding that interpersonal conflict, especially when peppered with intrapersonal, and then the external sources, aka nature, that's kind of my preferred order in terms of the stories that interest me the most. I agree. I would say that the battle of man versus himself is the deepest and most important of these conflicts. Any complete and well-developed story is going to involve the main character having to make a choice, whether to stand firm in his understanding of himself and his world, or change to some new understanding. But in order for that intrapersonal struggle to happen, the main character's viewpoint has to be challenged. Nobody changes who they are and how they see the world without some kind of external input. That means there has to be an impact character who gives voice to that alternative viewpoint. So that interpersonal conflict provides the catalyst for the intrapersonal conflict that eventually leads to character growth. Incidentally, if this sort of thing is interesting to you as a writer, I strongly recommend digging into the Dramatica theory of story. The folks who developed it are very smart, and their concept of the story mind has been very helpful to me and my growth as a writer. You can find out more at dramatica.org. That's D-R-A-M-A. T-I-C-A dot org. The link will be in the show notes. I think that's pretty much it for this week. I really am looking forward to the next part. I'm wondering how long this podcast is going to uh, take in terms of for finishing the book, because I know I was spoiled with making the cut, getting to listen to it whenever I wanted to. But I think that once a week is actually something that I've gotten used to now after going all the way through your archives and now having to wait every week. So I'm really, really glad that you've returned to podcasting, that you're in a place in your life where you're able to do this again, as well as the writing. I think the fact that you're writing so much and last week's word count, like, and your, your hours spent, like, that's great. I am really happy for you that you are dedicating the time to your writing and your podcasting. I think that's great because making more good fiction is something that all of us can benefit from. Indeed. I can't tell you how good it feels to be producing new content and engaging with my audience again. I'm feeling much more optimistic now about actually being able to finish telling these stories that I begun in Metamore City. There was a while there where I was afraid I might end up pulling a Robert Jordan on you all and dying before I finished. Knock on wood. As for how long Things Unseen will take to podcast, there are 25 chapters, including the prologue. If I keep releasing an average of half a chapter every week, that means it'll take about 50 weeks to podcast the entire thing. By that time, of course, my plan is to have The Lost in the Least finished and edited, so I can go right into podcasting the next book in the series. Wish me luck! Now it's time to recognize this week's new Patreon patrons— Ben, Dennis, and Maurice. With their contributions, we are now very close to unlocking that second milestone goal. 
At $200 per month, Randall Fulton will produce a new black-and-white story illustration for the podcast. He and I have been talking, and he's already got a scene in mind from the first Raven in the Writing Desk episode, Clean Up on Skyway 3. Want to see Fizz and his team cleaning up one of the Lightbringer's epic messes? Head over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make your pledge today. If you'd like to sound off about the show, send your comments in text or mp3 audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my handle on Twitter is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. You'll find the link in the show notes. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. <laughs>